0: Good morning everyone, my name is Madeline and I'll be reading from the Bible this morning. You can follow along with your own Bibles on your phones or on the screen behind me. Our first reading is John chapter 19 verses 14 to 19. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. All right. For our second reading this morning is in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53 verses one to 12. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Um,
1: Today, uh, we're going to just kick around the words that Madeline shared with us from uh, our two Bible readings. So right now, it's about lunchtime. Well, it's actually 25 past nine, but it'll be lunchtime soon. But in the story, it's lunchtime. And it's been a long morning. You know, one of those mornings in which it just feels like forever. You know, you've been up at the crack of dawn and it feels like it should be dinner time. And, and, and this leader walks out of his office and his hair's unkept and he's tired and he's exhausted and he's confused. And surrounding him are these angry and frustrated people just yelling. And he stands up, this leader, and he says, Here is your king, top of his voice. And he points to this really dishevelled, unimpressive, bleeding, (laughs) bound, broken person. It's an astonishing picture. But but little did he know that these words were just like adding blood to a tank of sharks, right? Because instantly the crowd that's out there, they just shout and they spit and they shake their fists in the air and they say, Take him away, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. And Pilate hears this and he stumbles back because the hostility is immense, right? Despised and rejected by his own people. He realizes he's getting nowhere. So Pilate agrees to their demands and he has Jesus cut off from the land of the living while ordering a sign nailed to the top of the cross Jesus of Nazareth, a king. It's an ugly throne. For the one who hadn't come to occupy land, but people. You see, Pilate totally misunderstood why Jesus will claim he's a king at this point. Jesus wasn't interested in a geographical reign, but relational reign. Not ruling over a nation, but creating a new rule over the lives of those who trust in him. But for Pilate, and for most of us, I'd say that's not what a king does, right? They take land, they enforce rule, they build an army, they pump up the economy. They can't change a heart and a will. But Jesus says he's a good king that can do that. And that is all bound up with his death upon Good Friday. But to see that, to see beyond what Pilate does, that actually requires a transformed imagination. Eyes to see more than what Pilate did. that's where our second Bible reading comes into play, you see. Written by Isaiah, who is a Hebrew prophet, he gives us a backstage pass to the crucifixion of Jesus. A behind-the-scenes look at what Pilate was seeing, but missing about Good Friday. And what is it that Isaiah shows to us so vividly? A king who is deeply acquainted with grief. And I think that's actually the best news that we could hear on Good Friday. Isaiah 53:1 begins by telling us who has believed our message, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He's asking a rhetorical question: Have you seen the Lord's strong arm before? Have you seen that? Have you seen God's strong arm? But don't jump to conclusions. You need to look twice, because His arm is revealed in something totally unstrong. First of all, this strong arm turns out to be a person, a person who turns out to be a servant. In verse 3, we learn what this servant's like. He's despised. In verse 4, we learn he knows pain and suffering. In verse 7, he's oppressed and afflicted. It's, it's a, a strange picture. If this is a king so beaten up and disfigured, how can God, of all people, if God is real in this, how could he have a strong arm that could be strong enough to save from someone so small? to say it another way, if the king can't save himself, what good is he at leading others? And this is what Isaiah goes on to explain. The first thing he tells us is that we have a king who actually knows the cost of a loaf of bread. Maybe this year you heard the story that a key politician was pressed on the cost of living and one of the reporters asked him, how much does bread and milk cost? And he couldn't answer. He had no idea. Interesting, maybe you saw it, maybe, maybe you reflected on that. But, but it showed a divide, didn't it, but that sometimes happens between what life's like on the ground and those that should be serving the people on the ground. Now, that might be true of an Australian leader who doesn't know the cost of living, but not with the servant king Isaiah is talking about. Here we have someone who knows every detail and all the living pressures that you and me face. Here is a king so deeply acquainted with the road of life because he walked it himself. Because he is just a man among men. But you notice in verse 2, he's a man we don't notice. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. No good looks, no kingly outfit, no suit, you wouldn't be his friend on Facebook. We would walk past him in a hurry if you saw him in Rundle Mall. In fact, this Isaiah says he's actually more like that little weed you see on the medium strip going to work in the dirt that you don't notice, in fact. That's who this person's actually most like. No beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. And that, turns out, is Jesus before Pilate. At best, we pity him, at worst, we reject and ignore him, which is Isaiah's next point. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So far, Isaiah's not painting this really good picture of a strong arm to save, is he? But as he, as he goes on, we learn that this rejection and suffering is for a very, very specific purpose. In the next few verses, I'll read it to you. Notice the interplay between the servant and his people that he's supposed to be serving. Listen to what it says. He took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He Was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Not only would we walk past this man in Rundle Mall, but as we walked past, we would say to him, You there, you are like this because your bad business decision got you there. You are like that because what you have done. You bit off more than you could chew. You didn't plan well your investments, and now you suffer the consequence of a life that is your own doing. So go away. It looks like that his isolation, this servant, is fair and just punishment for how he acted. But there's a big shift here. It's not his pain Isaiah describes. It's not his evil. It's not his transgressions. This servant is sinless. Sin, that's, that's a one-word summary the Bible uses to kind of wrap up all the evil and rebellion and injustice in this life. And he says that this servant suffers for sin. It turns out, in fact, we have a king who tests positive to the sin of his people. I'm sure by now that you have had a PCR test or a rat test of some type, and if you haven't, well done, We've had lots the last few weeks because our families had COVID going through it, but there's a moment. Every time you do a rat and you wait that 15 minutes and you look down and you you look for the second line, isn't there? And you, you... Is the light wrong? You know, have I got it? And you... And then when you get it, you, well, you know you've got it, but it's it's a dicey time. Or a PCR test, and you think, how long is it going to take? And the response is 24 to 48 hours. And that's fine, but you just sit there going, oh God, is, it, is it now, is it now, is it now? And then eventually it comes back, and my phone previews the message, but it doesn't preview the answer. And it gets to the SA pathology results, thank you for your PCR test, and the result it And you're like, I'm so anyway... There's this anticipation. But the the thing is, when you get the test back, it tells you you've got COVID, right? It doesn't offer the solution to COVID. And at this point in the servant's song, we are seeing the results of a rat test come back. A rat test the servant took, but it turns out it's actually not his results. Because in the central part of this whole chapter, states it clearly, no doubt about it, We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's our sin, but he tests positives for it. And this is where the strong arm of God is revealed. The good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Can you see it? This is a king who doesn't avoid the problems of our life, but he plunges headfirst into them to show us he is able to remove our iniquity. The servant will undo the brokenness of life by his own brokenness. However, at this point, there is an objection. If an innocent person suffers the punishment for a crime they do not commit, that's injustice, isn't it? We have a whole branch of the police set up to basically figure that stuff out if someone is in prison for the wrong crime. You don't want to punish the innocent. In fact, the Bible even condemns punishment of the innocent. In Proverbs 17, acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So it would seem very strange that God would then do the same thing to His own Son in our place, right? But again, notice the description Isaiah has been giving us. This person, this servant, identifies as one of his people. He becomes them. He tests positive to their sin. He's not just a representative. He is truly, for real life, becoming the thing that is wrong with us. And because he becomes like us in every single way, he can restore people back from straying, from being those lost sheep. Which means standing before Pilate on Good Friday is a king who is deeply acquainted with the road of life. In fact, each of us have strayed so far from this God that even when the servant did come, we don't recognize him. We're so far removed from the family that we don't know our own big brother when he comes, knocking on our door. But visit us, he has. Because the servant of Isaiah stands before Pilate, Jesus, the perfect person, able to fix us as broken people, whose life and whose words and whose deeds show us his human nature, but also without sin, the one who made no mistakes. And Bill Shorten said it this week, did you see that? The last person, he said, to ever make a mistake we're celebrating at Easter was 2,000 years ago. Now, whatever you think of Bill Shorten, that statement is absolutely true. Jesus, sinless, but deeply acquainted with the road of life and the grief Jesus, who is faithful when we are not, to give us his own goodness. One of the um, great tourist attractions of Adelaide in the northern suburbs, northeast, is the Oban. And if you haven't been on it, you should really get a deck chair and watch the buses go past. It's a great monument of engineering marvelness. There's nothing like it. But, you know, the, the Oban's good Actually, if you've travelled it for work for 50 years, it's actually a really helpful thing, so I'm not knocking it, but it is a hilarious idea. But it has interchanges, and it has all these buses come from around the suburbs, and they pick you up, and they take you to an interchange, and you pop on a concrete line, and you go all the way for another one to another one, you get in the city, and away you go, right? But in, in each of us, there's an Oban, and there's an interchange of sorts, an interchange from which all the traffic of our life radiates out from. For some, the interchange that we have where all our buses go to is this desire to be loved, to be liked, or the pursuit of perfection or comfort or a home or financial security and a good job. We have an interchange in us where desires and hundreds of buses come and go. And what is it for you? See, it's at this place, this interchange of your life where Jesus speaks into. It's here. Where Jesus comes to rule and reign, it's here that Jesus' cross finds a home. a king who is deeply acquainted with life, who has tears in his face and distress and sadness come to his people, who says with gentle and kind words, "Would you believe in me? Would you come to me and find rest? Would you let me reign over you to forgive you?" And it all begins with this transformed imagination Isaiah wants us to have, to see Jesus on the cross, not just as a man, unfortunately, there, but the Lord's strong arm to save you and me right there. You know, a few years after this whole crucifixion event, a writer in the Bible who did see Jesus this way, who did understand and had the transformed imagination that Isaiah spoke about, he wrote these words and summarized all of Good Friday for us. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if you look to your circumstances in your life, to the interchange, to determine if God loves me, you will continually wonder. But if you look to the cross, you will have no reason to doubt. So, what do you think? Wouldn't you love to have a king like that, ruling over you, acquainted with the road of life, who came to be like us, to come and meet us on the way, to pick us up, and to make us like him? Because actually, that's why I love this Jesus, and why I think it's a good Friday. I mean, how much do we need a saviour like that? Let me pray for us. Wonderful God, we're in awe... That you see us and know us and deeply acquainted with us, not as an observer, but as one who knows the grief and the road and the sadness and the pain and the frustration and the joy of life because you lived it. But you did so, wonderfully sinless and perfect, never making mistakes, to take our mistakes on you as Jesus, the great servant of Isaiah. So, Father, we now celebrate and think and remember and stand in awe at your amazing grace to us. Help us to believe and live and love that story and the Jesus who stands behind it. Thank you that it's Good Friday, Lord. Amen. As we reflect further, we're going to sing a song now called Amazing Grace. So, band, come back up and then stand and sing with us all of God's kindness in Jesus.